There are five species of loon that live in North America, but today I'm just going to tell you about my favorite, the common loon. Now, sometimes I actually forget how much I love these loons, probably because, despite the name common loon, they're anything but. You're not going to find them at your backyard feeder or gathered together at the local duck pond. Now, I've been privileged to see common loons and to hear them a handful of times in my life. Um, in northern Wisconsin while on vacation as a kid, and again in the Boundary Waters canoe area of northern Minnesota. And that call? Well, you can put that on the list of top 10 sounds of wilderness. In fact, the wailing call of a loon is frequently used in TV shows and movies to evoke a sense of wilderness and a feeling of suspense. And not without good reason. It's a kind of eerie sound, and it's a sound that lets you know you are far from the city. But if you ask me, sitting near a lake and hearing a loon call tugs at something deep in your soul. It's an invitation to set aside all the things that are weighing on your mind and to just live in that moment. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Loons are amazing birds. They're divers. In fact, another name for the common loon is the Great Northern Diver. During their breeding season, in spring and summer, most common loons live on lakes and other waterways in the northern United States and Canada, as well as in the southern parts of Greenland, Iceland, several Norwegian islands, and they range as far west as Alaska, and on rare occasions they show up in Scotland to the east. The size of common loons varies by region. Birds that breed in south-central Canada and the Great Lakes are the smallest, while those in the west are slightly larger and those in the east are the largest. Generally speaking, they're bigger than a typical duck, averaging just under three feet long with a four and a half foot wingspan. Weight can vary anywhere from five pounds to nearly 17. Males and females look the same, but males are about 25% larger than females. Now, the only thing common about these loons is their non-breeding plumage. During the winter, common loons are brown or grayish with a white neck. Their bill is pale during this time. To be honest, their non-breeding plumage really is just kind of meh. But in their breeding plumage? In their breeding plumage, common loons may be the most beautiful black and white birds you'll ever see. Adult breeding plumage consists of a black head and neck with green, purple, or blue iridescence. They have a distinct characteristic black and white barred necklace, a pure white breast, and a black and white checkered back. During the breeding season, their bill turns black and their eyes are red. Common loons molt twice a year. Well, more like one and a half times a year. In October, they undergo a partial molt of their head, body, and tail feathers, resulting in that meh plumage. Then in January or February, adults shed all of their flight feathers, leaving them temporarily unable to fly, and grow in that spectacular breeding plumage. Breeding habitat for common loons ranges from wooded lakes to tundra ponds. Lakes need to be large enough to allow them to take flight and have a good population of small fish. They prefer lakes with islands and coves, which provide protection from predators. 
Deep lakes with warm surface waters, relatively low biological productivity, and clear water where their prey are easily seen are the habitats where breeding loons are most successful in raising young. They're known to exhibit high breeding site fidelity, meaning they return to the same breeding sites year after year. Interestingly, loons also exhibit a strong tendency to settle as breeders on lakes that resemble the ones where they were hatched, a phenomenon called natal habitat imprinting. Their preference is based on two lake attributes, size and pH level. Now, this behavior is a little bit strange because it's just as strong in loons that hatched on small acidic lakes as those from large lakes with a neutral pH. Now, you're probably thinking, so what? What does that mean? Well, what this means is that loons that choose smaller, more acidic lakes are actively choosing habitats that have a lower rate of breeding success and a higher rate of chick mortality, which is kind of loony if you ask me. So since we're near the topic, let's talk about loon breeding. Loons are serially monogamous, something I've mentioned before. Breeding pairs jointly defend a territory consisting of an entire small lake or a protected bay within a large lake. A loon couple remains together throughout a breeding attempt and rearing their offspring. Loon pairs don't remain together during the winter, but they reunite each spring. During the spring migration, males usually precede females by a few days or weeks, settling on their lake once a portion of it becomes ice-free. Loon pairs will usually breed together for many consecutive years, but if one of the pair dies or gets evicted by a rival loon, the other pair member quickly moves on and establishes a new bond with the evicting bird. Most loon adults will have two or more different mates during their lives. Evicting individuals tend to be younger birds, five to nine years old, while the evicted adults are usually 15 years or older. Male loons begin to show higher mortality, increased territory loss, and a decline in body condition starting at about age 15. Now, loons can live to be almost 30 years old, and in fact, about 90% of common loons live to be in their mid-20s, but survival rates drop to about 75% after that. Now, perhaps in response to this physical decline, males 15 or older show increased rates of both territorial aggression and territorial vocalization. This age-related change in behavior is what's known as terminal investment. It's a nothing-left-to-lose strategy seen in many older animals that are trying their darndest to eke out just one or two more years of breeding before they die. You know, it's kind of the loon equivalent of a midlife crisis. If they could drive, they'd buy a sports car, get hair plugs, and seriously consider those ads for natural male enhancement. Male and female common loons build a nest of grasses and reeds in a sheltered location along a lake shore or on an island, preferably near deep water so they can swim to and from the nest underwater to avoid alerting predators. Pairs that nested together the previous year usually use the same nest site if they hatch chicks successfully there. In contrast, pairs that were unsuccessful or lost their eggs to a predator usually move the nest to a different location. The female lays one to two olive brown eggs with dark brown spots. Eggs are laid several days apart and hatch asynchronously. Incubation takes about a month and both parents help with the incubation duties. Common loon chicks are dark brown with a white belly. Within hours of hatching, chicks can swim, 
but they'll ride around on their parents' back quite a bit. Now, seeing a loon with a little fuzzball of a chick sitting on its back, sometimes with just its head poking out from between the parents' wings, that is one of the most amazing sights in nature. Parents and chicks initially stay in shallow, isolated bays where the parents are better able to defend the chicks from either rival loons or eagles, which are their main predator. Male parents defend broods consisting of two chicks more vigorously than they do single chicks, chiefly with the territorial yodel call that I'll talk more about later. Both parents feed the chicks, and they feed them live prey. The parents catch small fish, hold them crosswise in their bill, call using a hoot call, which again I'll tell you more about later, and approach the chicks with their head lowered so the chicks can grasp the offered fish. As they grow, chicks catch an increasingly larger portion of their own food by themselves. Young loons can actually feed and fend for themselves by the time they're two months old, but many juveniles continue to beg from adults well beyond this age. If you have teenagers, you know exactly how a loon parent feels. Biologists estimate that a loon pair with two chicks can eat about a thousand pounds of fish over a 15-week period. Since they're diving birds and need open water, loons are migratory and head south in the fall. Juveniles leave their natal lakes before they freeze over, but usually several weeks after the parents have already departed. Common loons migrate during the day, starting about two hours after sunrise, and flying at altitudes of five to 9,000 feet, where the air is less turbulent. Migrating loons are fast flyers, too. They've been clocked at speeds of over 70 miles an hour. They winter along the coast and on inland lakes and bays, basically migrating to the nearest body of water that won't freeze over. In North America, loons winter mainly along the Pacific and North Atlantic coasts, and many stop off at the Great Lakes during their journey. The United States Geological Survey has found that many loons actually winter about 80 miles offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. When the juveniles reach coastal waters after that first migration, they'll stay there for the next two years. Usually when they reach the age of three, the young loons return north in the spring, even though they might not breed for several more years. So clearly loons need bodies of water. They breed there, they winter there, and they stop on them in between, and with good reason. Like I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, loons are divers. 80% of their diet consists of fish up to 10 inches long, which they catch underwater and generally swallow head first. And loons are visual hunters, so the water needs to be clear so they can see their prey. When fish are scarce or hard to catch, loons will prey on just about anything else they can catch, including insects, crayfish, snails, leeches, amphibians, and aquatic plants. They've even been known to prey on the occasional hapless duckling. Loons swallow most of their prey underwater, and they have sharp rearward-pointing projections on their tongue and the roof of their mouth to help them get a good, solid grip on slippery fish. Now, having an adaptable diet is an important survival trait. I recently read an article about two of the world's oldest common loons who breed at the Saney National Wildlife Refuge in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. The male, known simply as ABJ, is 36 years old, and his mate, at least until recently, known as FE, is 37 years old. They had been a couple for 25 years. Now, 
ABJ suffered an injury to his bill in a territorial dispute, and probably an injury to his pride when Effie left him for a younger man. After these injuries, ABJ relocated. Researchers assumed he went to either another lake in the refuge or possibly to Lake Michigan where prey would be a little easier to catch. You see, the lake where ABJ lived with F.E. prior to his injury has a large population of brown bullheads, which are a type of catfish with long, thick whiskers called barbels near their mouths. This makes it impossible for the loons to swallow bullheads underwater, but even if they bring it to the surface, loons still do swallow their prey whole, so they need to pluck these barbels from the bullheads. Now this requires a series of stabbing and plucking actions, something that ABJ would have been unable to do with his injured bill, thus necessitating his move to someplace where foraging was easier. He was spotted again in June looking healthy, which suggests that he has adapted to foraging successfully even with his damaged bill. Now, also interestingly, and kind of on a side note, removing these barbels is a specialized skill that loons living on this lake not only learn, but they pass down this knowledge to their chicks. In fact, researchers observed ABJ teaching his own chicks how to do it. After catching a bullhead, ABJ would have the juvenile watch as he plucked both barbels before feeding the bullhead to his offspring. After several rounds of this instruction, ABJ would switch to just removing one barbel before offering it to the chick, allowing the chick to remove the second one. Pretty amazing stuff. One more side note on these two loons, Effie has successfully hatched over 40 chicks in her lifetime, making her the record holder for common loon lifetime productivity. Okay, back to the diving abilities of the common loon. Much like penguins, loons have adaptations that make them experts at swimming and diving. In fact, they spend most of their time in the water, only coming ashore to mate and nest. Their legs are placed far back on their bodies, making them very efficient at swimming, but extremely awkward on land. Webbed feet and powerful legs make loons fast and agile underwater, the better for chasing down their prey. They can quickly blow air out of their lungs and flatten their feathers to expel any air trapped there, so they can dive quickly and swim fast. Once below the surface, the loon's heart slows down to conserve oxygen. Dives average less than a minute and are normally less than 30 feet deep, but they can stay submerged for up to five minutes and have been recorded diving over 200 feet deep. If you've ever seen a loon dive on a lake, you know you need to be alert to spot it again because it can surface anywhere and quite a distance away. Also like penguins, loons have solid bones, not hollow like most other birds, making them less buoyant and more effective at maneuvering through the water. This is probably why when they're on the surface, they sit lower in the water than, say, a duck. In addition to being awkward on land, their leg placement and extra weight have another drawback. Loons need a very long runway in order to take flight. Loons require anywhere from 30 yards up to a quarter of a mile, depending on the wind, for flapping their wings and running across the top of the water just to gain enough speed for liftoff. Loons have been known to get trapped by landing on lakes that are too small for them or by landing on wet roads or parking lots, mistaking them for lakes during their migration. 
Now, their aquatic lifestyle and choice of nesting sites keeps most adult loons safe from most predators. Nesting birds are at most risk. Eggs are taken by a number of mammals, including mink, skunk, otters, foxes, and raccoons. In fact, raccoons are responsible for nearly 40% of all nest failures. Birds like gulls, ravens, and crows will also eat unattended eggs. The most significant predator of chicks, as I mentioned earlier, is bald eagles, but chicks are also killed by snapping turtles, large gulls, and even big fish like musky pike and largemouth bass. When they're wintering on the coast, sharks are a risk. Balloons are also known to aggressively defend themselves and their nests. When a predator approaches either the loon's nest or the loon itself, it's not uncommon for the loon to attack the predator, rushing at it and trying to stab it with its dagger-like bill, aiming its attacks either at the predator's abdomen or the back of its head or neck. These defensive attacks can actually be fatal for predators the size of a fox or a raccoon. But climate change, lead poisoning, and pollution are bigger threats to the loon. The common loon's breeding range has moved north over the past 100 years. A century ago, they were breeding as far south as Iowa. Lead poisoning, primarily from fishing sinkers, especially those about the size of the grit stones they ingest, is a significant source of mortality. A study of dead loons recovered in New England between the years 1987 and 2000 found that lead poisoning from fishing weights was responsible for about one-half of all breeding adult deaths. Loons are also a key indicator of mercury deposition in aquatic environments because of their position at the top of the food chain. When mercury enters the water, it's taken up by fish and then spreads through the food chain, becoming most concentrated at the top. The main contributors to elevated mercury levels in the water are coal-burning power plants, waste incineration, and metal production. Methylmercury is a neurotoxin, and it's been shown to negatively affect the health and survival of common loons. Male loons, which tend to eat bigger fish, tend to have the highest mercury levels in their blood. Molting and egg-laying expels some of this excess mercury, but not nearly enough. Elevated mercury levels can lead to lethargy, decreased diving and foraging, less time spent incubating eggs, which you know can't be good, and just an overall lower survival rates of chicks. In one study, common loons with high mercury levels produced 41% fewer young than those with low mercury levels. Previous research also found a correlation between mercury levels and pH. More acidic aquatic environments are at the highest risk for elevated methylmercury concentrations, which leads us back to the problem with natal habitat imprinting. Remember that? And the loons who returned to these acidic lakes to nest. Okay, back to happier topics. Loons are not social birds, and they don't generally form flocks, except that sometimes, outside of the breeding season, they do get together, and nobody seems to know exactly why. A group of loons is called an asylum, a cry, a loomy, a raft, or a water dance. Sometimes these flocks gather at night to sleep, so maybe it's a matter of safety in numbers. Sometimes it's seen in the fall, so maybe it's a prelude to migration. Other possible explanations that have been offered include young adults scouting the territories to see if there's a rival they want to challenge in the future, 
or adults whose chicks are older visiting a rival territory as a way to lure rivals away from their own territory and their own chicks. While these loon social gatherings may appear peaceful, they're often punctuated by violence, probably because the guest list includes individuals that are likely to fight each other in the near future for territory ownership or mates. Now, common loons make a variety of vocalizations, but there are four that are most common, the tremolo, the yodel, the wail, and the hoot, each of which communicates a different message. The frequency at which loons vocalize has been shown to vary based on time of day, weather, and season. Calls have also been shown to occur more frequently in cold temperatures and when there's little to no rain. Why? I don't know, but facts are facts. Loons are most vocally active from mid-May to mid-June. The whale, yodel, and tremolo calls are most frequently heard at night, which probably lends to that feeling of wilderness and suspense that these calls are known for. The tremolo call, sometimes called the laughing call, is characterized by its short, wavering quality. This call is used to signal distress or alarm caused by territorial disputes or perceived threats. It's also used to communicate the loon's arrival to other loons at a lake, kind of a, hey, I'm here, often when they're still flying overhead. It's actually the only vocalization that loons use in flight. The tremolo call has three levels of intensity that correlate to the loon's level of distress. The types are differentiated by increasingly higher pitch frequencies added to the call. While the word loony has its roots in the word lunatic, its usage is also influenced by the wild tremolo call of the loon. The yodel call is a long and complex call made only by the male. It's used to establish territorial boundaries and in territorial confrontations. The length of the call corresponds with the loon's level of aggression. The dominant frequencies of the yodel indicate the body mass and therefore the health of the yodeling male. A male that occupies a new territory actually alters its yodel so that it's clearly distinguishable from the yodel of the previous territory owner. A loon's wail is a long call consisting of up to three notes and is often compared to a wolf's howl, both for its sound and for its purpose. Loons wail to communicate their location to other loons. The call is given back and forth between breeding pairs or between an adult and a chick, either to maintain contact or to find each other after being separated. Finally, the hoot is a short, soft call and is another form of contact call. It's a more intimate call than the whale and is used exclusively between family members or when loons gather in an asylum. This is the call that's used when adults summon their chicks to feed. Okay, last fun facts. The appearance of the loon and their calls have made them prominent in several Native American mythologies. Several tribes have creation stories that involve the loon, and many also have stories about how the loon got its distinctive necklace. 
An old New England colloquial name for loons was call up a storm because their calls supposedly foretold stormy weather, even though, like I said earlier, they call more frequently when rain is in short supply. Common loons are the provincial bird of Ontario, and they appear on the Canadian $1 coin, widely known as a loony. They also appear on the Minnesota State Quarter. And that's where we'll end this episode. Thank you, faithful listener, for listening. Be sure to give us a like and subscribe. It is now and will always be free of charge. Other ways to support the podcast? Hey, get someone else to listen. Tell a friend, tell a family member, bribe them if you have to, just get them to listen. Check out our Patreon page and become a patron. Subscriptions start at a mere $5 a month, and after three months you get some dispatches from the forest merchandise. How nice is that? You can find all that information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do it through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and obviously my email address, so you can reach me there if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. Or, you know, leave a comment on whatever platform you listen on. Check out the Dispatches from the Forest merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest and get some merch. So many possibilities, I guarantee you'll find something you like. And if you don't, well, tell me what you want and I'll see about adding it to the lineup. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.